This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Oliver Friedman is the CTO and co-founder of Ziggio, an API for video recording and playback that's essentially like Stripe or Twilio for video. The service abstracts all of the work for developers to allow apps and websites to take advantage of video streaming and capture. Legend Oliver chat about the engineering challenges he and his team overcame both client-side and server-side as they developed their solution. On the organizational, Oliver has made amazing use of a worldwide distributed team, largely sourced through online marketplaces. Oliver's tips for remote distributed team management provide excellent tactical guidance for work isolation and around-the-clock productivity. Hey, Oliver, man. Thanks for joining us. Really cool to have you on. Thank you, Lynch. Glad to be on your podcast. Could you just give, you know, a two or three minute background story of, of yourself and, and your work, you know, so the audience can get to know you a little bit? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Germany. I grew up there and went to school there, studied computer science and mathematics, um, did a PhD in computer science, uh, theory of computation. Um, did part of my studies then during my PhD time in New York. And um, yeah, after completing my PhD, I always tried to find an excuse <laughs> to come back to New York City and kind of do my own thing. Um, so uh, I started then a company um, in New York City with an American co-founder uh, called Ziggio. And um, we do um, an API for video recording and playback primarily. So similar to, say, Twilio or SendGrid, uh, we make it super simple to plug in a component, in this case, video recording and playback in the browser as well as in mobile apps um, to enable any developer to, to use that, um, make it as easy as adding a button, basically. Oh, fantastic. So the point is then that, you know, if I'm a developer, I cannot have to worry about if I want to build video recording into in my app or so I guess web or, or mobile or otherwise. Is, is that the point? That is the point. And there are a lot of details that you need to take care of if you're trying to build it yourself. So for instance, there are obviously different type of browsers and versions, and they all need to use different type of recording technologies and different type of streaming technologies. And you end up with different video formats that once you get them, you can't really play them back on any other device. They might be rotated, for instance. So what we do, we basically give you some UI that you can add to your website or to your app, as well as the cloud, which will receive the, the video recordings, transcode them to whatever um, formats you need and different resolutions and so on, and then also stream them back um, to all the devices where you want to play them back. Very cool. Very cool. Talk about some of the engineering challenges there. You know, I know that, um, I mean, this is critically important and, you know, so many apps are, are going this direction. Video is, is definitely the next, you know, kind of frontier. Um, yeah, talk about you know what what engineering challenges did you have to under overcome uh, you know as you're building the app? Yeah, so there, there's a bunch of them. Um, so starting with the client side, um, as I mentioned, there are many different browsers, and we we have customers that, for instance, still have their own customers who want to use Internet Explorer eight. Um, so we need to make sure that our software works across a variety of different devices and and browsers. And whenever we introduce new features, we need to be sure that they don't break anything on these, these old components. 
Um, so there's an extensive amount of testing that goes into our software, both automated as well as manual. Um, and then on the server side, um, obviously people are mostly concerned about um, latency, how long does it take for videos to upload, how long does it take for videos to be transcoded. Um, so you have to come up with an interesting pipeline on the server side to do that as quickly as possible and also to be able to scale that as rapidly as possible. Because, for instance, if somebody blasts out their marketing campaign where all of a sudden like 10,000 people are trying to record themselves at the same time, then obviously you need to be able in the cloud side to um, yeah, have enough bandwidth to do that, to transcode still as quickly as before, but also to scale it down afterwards so you don't pay for it, so we don't pay um, for a crazy amount of servers that we're running in the background. Yeah, understood. So you really have some some vertical and horizontal scaling concerns there uh, from the infrastructure standpoint. How'd you solve that to make it, you know, not just this like overwhelming cloud bill every month? Exactly. Um, so the the original prototype um, that we that we wrote um, was all built on AWS and we extensively used um, EC2 auto scale, I mean, quite, quite traditionally. Um, but in our newer version, we're trying to use as much of the serverless stack as possible. Um, so we refactored our application to use mostly stuff like Lambda for API endpoints that don't use any heavy IO have specific um, in-house built streaming servers that take care of these special protocols that you need to, to record from different types of devices. Um, and then for all the background processing, we have our own transcoding pipeline. And we also use serverless features on AWS for that. So um, the, the cool thing about Lambda is that you can boot up these functions incredibly quickly but they have the disadvantage on the other hand um, that they're very restricted in terms of resources that you can use on them, both in terms of time, memory, and storage, and so on. So our, the way our system works, um, it kind of gets in the, the data and decides whether the, um, the resource constraints that we have on Lambda are good enough to, to do an actual transcoding, for instance, um, or to split the file, for instance, into two or three and, and run three function instances. And if that works, we do it. It can be done um, incredibly quickly. And if we decide, okay, it doesn't work, that video, for instance, is too large, um, we launch um, instances of Fargate, um, which is a Docker version um, or a Docker execution version of AWS, um, where you can also scale infinitely, at least in theory, um, with the disadvantage that the boot up time is much longer. So that can be like 30 seconds. Um, but the neat trade off here is we only need to do that with videos that already have a certain size. So the transcoding in that case will take considerably lo longer than just 30 seconds. So the boot up time in that case is not really a problem. You really had to draw on all your uh, computer science algorithmic chops to, to pull all this off. And this is a pretty complicated problem. Yeah, it definitely comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> how do you um, how do you think about scaling your engineering organization? I mean, I can imagine that that you really are, are going to get a lot of growth out of a a proposition like this. You know, obviously you were you know sort of the founder, and and now you need to think about growing a company. Um, talk about that experience. Exactly. Um, I mean, we've started from the ground up as a highly distributed team, so very much in line what uh, with what your guys are doing. 
So we have engineers all around the world who work full-time for our company, but are not really located in, in our office in New York. Um, so that definitely posed a challenge. How do you communicate things? Um, yeah, all, all these kinds of things. But it's a lot of fun to build a company like that and not have the overhead um, or the necessity to always come to an office to to meet your staff. That's absolutely right. Yeah, share some tips on, I mean, because it's not just remote, you know, distributed when you're dealing with worldwide time zones and, and standups or, you know, whatever your management paradigm is. I mean, most of the stuff isn't about technology. Obviously, you have your, I imagine you have your, your build pipelines or CICD or something of that nature, you know, but um, yeah, what tools do you use to like overcome the, the human problems there? Collaboration and, and just time, you know, you don't want your guys across the world to have to be up all night. So, you know, what's that look like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it depends on the um, on the part of the business or which part of the business people are involved in, how you structure it properly. So, for instance, for our um, support team, and we have a pretty big um, team of uh, support engineers who need to be really hands-on when customers reach out and need uh, 24-7 support with, with our software. Um, so we mostly organize them. Um, on Zendesk, obviously, and on chat on, on Slack. And our head of support kind of coordinates everything that's going on. And whenever a new ticket comes in that, um, that poses a new challenge, this is being discussed usually on Slack, and then put into an internal library of like particularly interesting tickets and problems in on Zendesk. And um, yeah, our head of support is mostly concerned with organizing these interesting tickets for future use so um, staff can be on- onboarded as quickly as possible. Um, so that's that's mostly how our support team team works internally. And our engineering team, what I found um, were, what would work uh, particularly well is everybody who is on a remote team has a very clear um, objective and it doesn't overlap crazily with what everybody else is doing. So for instance, in our case, we have um, somebody working on everything concerning iOS and somebody working on everything concerning Android, somebody concerning everything that we have on JavaScript and HTML and CSS in terms of the embeddings, then all the front end on our website, but then somebody for the backend, somebody for DevOps. And obviously they all have some overlaps, but they can work reasonably well on their own. Um, and yeah, for, for planning, we mostly use Asana and we have weekly team meetings with with everybody and then smaller meetings with the subgroups concerning um, the specific tasks of a week. How was it for you going from, you know, you probably were developing everything all the time and then trying to scale out into a team where I imagine that you had to put on more of like your management hat and that, and that wasn't your discipline, right? Like you, you studied all the way as far as you could possibly study computer science and you built, you know, I'm sure V1 and, you know, all that stuff without other people. And then you have to turn into like a worldwide manager. You know, what was that process like? Was that natural? Um, that's definitely an interesting process. I mean, I, I had some experiences uh, coming from university, working with other students and teams. And I did some teaching as well, organizing some teams, working stuff. So I had some experience, but obviously, as you say, it's always hard to let go of code that, you, that you've written and say, okay, now somebody else has to run with it. Um, but I think it worked reasonably well. So I, I, I was very lucky to find really good talent. Um, and whenever we bring in somebody new, I'll try to onboard that person um, 
somewhere on the outside, something reasonably easy to get used to the code base because we have a seriously large code base that can be intimidating at times, I think. So um, whatever I think is the easiest way to get in, to, get, to make people feel good about themselves and confident that they can contribute. Um, and then I basically try to find adjacent parts of the code to make people feel more and more at home. Um, and at some point, they know most of the code. How did you go about finding worldwide talent? I mean, there's like, you know, billions of people, right? And there's a lot of engineers out there. Uh, what what sources um, did you use? And, and I mean, how do you, how do you find the people and, and make those connections such that over that distance, you can know that, that really they are that great and that you want to introduce them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we mostly used a platform called Upwork, um, if you heard of it, to, to, to find people. And it's really a lot of like going through resumes of people and then reaching out to say your top 10 for a particular position, um, like chatting a little bit with them and just checking some of the social skills, I'd say, how quickly do they respond and do they use like way too many emojis, for instance. Um, and then once that seems fine, I usually send them um, engineering challenges um, that I came up with and that are not completely artificial, but pretty close to, to the code style that we, are, we have in our company and to the type of problems that we have. And then I just check how quickly can they solve it and how, how well it is solved. And it doesn't have to be solved completely. I also see it as a plus if the person reaches out and says, hey, uh, can you clarify this? How do you really want this to be implemented? Because obviously I want people to ask questions um, and not just do it all by themselves and then come up with something that. Yeah. That and as a, use. you know, I certainly, we know about Upwork, right? I'm a big, big time player in our space and uh, your strategy is absolutely right there. And a lot of times I'll get queried and say, well, I could just use Upwork and I could go international and it's gonna be a lot cheaper than us based developers, but you, you totally hit the nail on the head. There is that you need to be willing to field dozens and dozens of people and have the wherewithal from your own skill set exactly. to be able to test them. And so really what you, you've set up there is a recruiting pipeline, a testing pipeline that's going to allow you to, you know, sort of identify the diamonds in the rough. That's a great platform to do that. And I always tell people, it's like, hey, if you're prepared to do that, you can exploit a lot of arbitrage in the labor market. But if you're not prepared to do that, understand that like the cost and the friction of you're never going to get any work done because you don't have the skills to run that pipeline and, and test it that way. So like there's this important distinction on how to you know, apply your skills and how to apply your budget into your recruiting pipeline. If you can use a tool like that, that's a fantastic way to get economic benefit. But if you don't know how to do that, you're going to be in, in deep trouble. And I think that there's this misnomer that you can just go post your job online and, you know, great, people will apply and you just pick one and everything will be, you know, hunky dory. And it's, it's just it's not that way. You know, so what were the trials and tribulations of, of that method? Like how many people failed out? Oh, most of them. I mean, I think particularly that people, once you post something, for instance, on Upwork, you will immediately get like some recommendations by the Upwork engine, I suppose, and say, oh, you should hire this person. And this is usually, I, I mean, you usually can't really use these people. Um, you really have to dig through, I'd say like 100 people and then reach out to 10 of them. And then maybe one or two of the people that you reached out to are actually good. 
And as you know, with, with coding, once you, once you hire somebody who is, is not a good coder or doesn't apply your standards, uh, they actually make you do more work by like fixing everything, all the bugs that people introduce. So you re- need to be really careful in finding good people. You know, and that, that one or 2% number is like an absolute universal truth, you know, for, for people that want to build a great organization, I think with any talent is that somehow or another, you're either going to pay for the capacity to figure out how to find the one or 2%, like somebody else does it for you. And that's what we do. Or you're going to allocate the budget time and expertise from your side to do the filtering down to, to one or 2%. And I mean, that's just a universal truth. And so it, it's so cool to hear you say that and to have been successful with that. I myself have built businesses, you know, on on freelancers from Upwork, not in software, but in other functions. And that's exactly the process. And you need to be able to do that. I think, you know, our proposition to to business owners and CTOs, CEOs is once you have the cash flow or the wherewithal to think about outsourcing that function, that's where we're going to step in because we can bring you to the one or two percent right away because we already did the work. And the question is there is like, how to budget and think about, you know, do you have the capacity and the ability to be able to identify the one or 2%? If you don't, it's not a good proposition for your time. And it really comes down to the self-awareness of, you know, it's like what you're good at. So I, I love that, that you went down that road because it can be amazingly effective, but it's, it's not going to be effective for everybody. You need that skill set. No, I completely agree. And um, I, I do like spending some time on that because I also... What's cool about like outsourcing or finding talent um, overseas is that many of those people are really hungry to do something cool and to work hard. So if you spend the time and find the talent, you end up with really, really interesting and cool people in my experience. You're so right. And you know what I what I've noticed is that uh, you know people tend to to get these ideas that you know like oh I'm not going to hire from such and such country because I heard all their developers are terrible. That's not true. You know, one to two percent of the developers are good everywhere. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Exactly. Now, you are right that if if you're a, a company that you know sort of is based on English, for example, um, you, you are going to need to think very carefully about a lot of the soft skills and, and things like that. So you might have an absolutely brilliant engineer, but if they're speaking Russian, that's not going to help you out, right? No, that's true. <laughs> so no, obviously there has to be one like working language that everybody is comfortable. Right? With. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know that you've totally checked all the boxes on that, and you know it's it's very cool to to hear you have have been successful with that. Um, talk about if you would maybe some of the the stack choices and and actual you know sort of deep technology choices that you you had to make on the on the, the development side because I think you know video is. It's still one of those areas that maybe not everybody feels feels great in, you know, and I think it's going to be more and more ubiquitous. Um, so you've done a great job abstracting that, you know, and developers maybe don't need to think about all that because they can use your product. Um, but if they are thinking about it, you know, what what um, would people do from a technology standpoint to you know build out some of these things? Yeah, sure. I mean, on the on the client side, you kind of have to use uh, obviously the languages that that are there. So in the browser, we we use HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. And on older browsers, we have to use Flash um, because the the access to the camera is only reasonably recent that you can use like plain JavaScript APIs to to access the camera. Um, on the server side, I mean, you can use more or less whatever language you like. Um, we started out originally 
um, like way back when we started with PHP, um, which is not not my favorite language um, at all. But uh, one of our mentors was building like a very first piece of the prototype, and then we just uh, kept on using it. Um, but we now migrated um, most of our architecture to primarily Node.js. Um, the, the reason that we decided to use Node.js is when the first version of AWS Lambda came out, it only supported JavaScript, and we really wanted to use the serverless stack. So we said, okay, that's fine. Let we, we use Node.js. Now you could use any, basically any language on Lambda, not any, but almost any. Um, so if you would do it again, we would probably use Go. Um, in terms of in terms of the other stack that you need for your transcoding pipeline. Um, most transcoders will be based, including our own, on FFmpeg, um, and that's mostly like a C C plus plus program um, that you can uh, compile yourself. But you need to have an environment where you can execute arbitrary binaries. Um, yeah, for everything else, it, it's kind of up to you what you're using. Um, since we're dealing with video files and some of them are really, really large, like um, 20 gigabytes, for instance, you need to have an IO system and a storage system that is capable of handling insane amounts of IO operations. Wow. I love that detail, man. You just blew me away. I have to be honest that I, I can't keep up, but I do understand that our audience would, uh, would totally appreciate that. So, and there's, there's a lot of chatter around, um, particularly around go, you know, is this gonna, is this going to take off the way that, that people thought it got really hot. It got a little cold. Now it's coming back around again. And you know, there's there's exactly. a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of chatter around Go, you know, in the community. And and obviously, you can't go wrong with like you know, so Node on the back end, tons of Python, you know. So you really have a lot of options. And I, and I do believe that that most of the the cloud providers, especially on the serverless side, are, are realizing that you know people are going to use what they're going to use, and we have to you know kind of adapt that way. Uh, last question, you know, so you. You had to to be you know a technical founder and you know just run a business and so I wonder how much you know what have you learned um, and what can you advise on technical founders um, you know all the things that are not technology and not code um, you know around running a business and, and scaling up you know what maybe some some learning lessons and places that you wish you or things you wish you knew before that that you know now. Oh sure, I think one of the things that particularly technical co-founders love to do is is work on the technology and and the product, and that they think they know best what should be done with the product. But it sometimes really helps to to listen to your other co-founders and also listen into what your salespeople are doing and to listen into the actual feedback that you're getting from customers. As painful as it can be, it's really helping you to understand what people are actually asking for. What are some things you learned from your customers, you know, in, the, in that feedback cycle that, you know, assumptions you made that were like, you know, totally wrong and that you're, you're glad you had that customer feedback channel? Um, well, you sometimes think about which features to build next and you think, oh, this would be a really, really cool feature to have. And some of them are easy and some of them are hard. And sometimes when you really listen to the customers say, oh, what they actually want is this, that would, might even be easier to build. So in, in our case, for instance, we were building some uh, machine learning in, in, the, in the backend, which basically does some object identification in the video. So it can tell you, hey, in um, like minute two, second five, there's a coffee mug um, in there. And we tagged the videos with that. We got really excited about that. And our customers were like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. But what I really want to do is um, filter my videos automatically, whether they are safe for work or not safe for work. So we said, oh, okay. So we just need to detect nudity for these people. So we 
um, essentially used our object detection system to now detect nudity and offer an automatic safe for work, not safe for work filter. And that's what people were really looking for. That's a great example that, you know, you can totally over-engineer something and the customer's like, yeah, but like, I just really exactly. just want this other thing, you know, and, and there's so many great stories. Like, you know, Slack is a, is a great example. You know, they just sort of, let's build a game and, oh, it needs to have chat in it. Oh, wait, people only care about chat. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and the rest is history. So, well, Oliver, man, thanks. Thanks for spending the time. You know, it's super cool conversation. And um, we'll make sure that um, everybody's aware of of what you're providing. I think it's a really good service. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Lance. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.